This is Simulcast, a high-fidelity podcast about healthcare simulation. So today we're going to be talking about um, Just Say No to Simulation. Now this, is, uh, I understand, is a talk that you developed um, fairly recently around myths and fails. So can you just give us a little bit of background on the why behind this talk? Yes, well, I was a little worried that people might take it literally and not come to the session. Uh, but really, for me, this is a little bit looking back over the last 15 years and thinking, you know, there's so many things that I did wrong, my sim teams have done wrong, things that we thought we were really, you know, having a go at and doing well at the time and with retrospect, I think, were fairly either foolish or just didn't work. And uh, so I sort of started to think, you know, one of the ways of thinking how to go forwards is to really have a good look back and think, sure, some of those things were really good, some of them not so good. And I think in the rush to be a sim enthusiast, sometimes you do think it's all great. And the reality is simulation can do pretty much anything, but certainly not everything, and certainly not everything all at once. So that's the kind of background to it. Yeah, excellent. So with that premise introduced, what I might do is introduce our audience. So we're at Markham Stofield today, um, just north of, north of Toronto, I believe. I nailed that. There's a few nods in the room. Excellent. So audience, can you please uh, introduce yourself with a big round of applause that we'll capture on audio? <laughs> for the 3,000 people we've got here. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. The, the, the mics don't pick up a wide range, that's obvious. So on to the topic of the podcast, and, and as we move through, we'll uh, try and advance the, the slides as we go. So we've got some signposting for what we're talking about for you guys here in the live audience. Yeah, this is like the slide that says, sure, sim is great. Uh, this is a picture from my own shop uh, at the Gold Coast University Hospital where we do a fair bit of inside your simulation. Uh, and I guess this is the kind of slide that you show when you're giving the just say yes to simulation, uh, proving how cool it is and how you can do this fabulous team training and how you can learn so much about your system and your environment. And to be honest, all of that is true as well. Uh, I'm the first to put up my hand and say there's so many opportunities from simulation and uh, my journey to get to here has been very iterative, one small step at a time. Uh, so yeah, I did want to put it out there, but maybe we should just say yes as well. But we'll, we'll start to look at the just say no um, quite promptly. And I guess the, the format that this is taking is working through a sort of number of myths and fails about simulation, really driven because I think both of us have seen um, people reproducing the same errors that we've made um, over the years and trying to actually do a bit of knowledge translation. So hopefully that can expedite that learning curve at an organisational level as well. So you guys don't have to make all the same blunders and misperceptions that we've made along the way. Um, and yeah, that, that's a fair frame to... Yeah, I think so. So we'll start off with myth number one, which is simulation is for everything and everyone. Can you just take us through your thoughts on that one? Yeah, sure. I've certainly been in rooms, faculty development rooms with simulation where people sort of proudly say, my name is Victoria and I'm a simulationista. Uh, and, you know, they're capturing the enthusiasm that we have and I think that's good. Uh, what I would say, though, is that often in our rush to establish ourselves in an organisation or in an institution, we're tempted to take on things that either simulation just doesn't suit or it's just the wrong modality for the question that's being asked. So simulation is very good for things like team training. It is very good if you know what you're trying to achieve. There are many different simulation options as to how to achieve it. But I think often we can be driven by other things 
um, in particular the capabilities of our mannequins, uh, in particular some of the questions we get asked to solve that we know need to be solved by people maybe having a discussion in a room together, uh, people we get asked to run complicated um, simulations looking at cardiac emergencies when all people really want to do is practice ECG interpretation. So. My plea with this myth is really think about what you're trying to do. And in fact, this next slide really sort of captures it all. You see some of the manufacturer advertisements. Oh my God, 14 pulse points. That's such a cool mannequin. And then you find yourself writing the aortic dissection scenario. And, you know, that's pretty good because you can have one pulse on one side and one not on the other side. And then you realize that all that happens in the scenario is that you write out the CT angio form and then you pop it in the box and then you wait. It's not a very exciting simulation. So the point being, you've got to really think beyond what's the capability of my mannequin. And so much, I think, of in the simulation world, Jesse has been push stuff at you rather than saying, hang on, we've got a problem. How do we pull simulation into it? Because I think that's the more critical uh, thing for me. And I, I've got to echo that, that I think there's been a lot of those uh, simulations that have been run that have been this awkward kind of clunky thing that this has been an entree for a lecture. Um, and that, that and ends up being essentially a physiology lecture preceded by a kind of weird and uh, semi-pointless scenario being run. So. Yeah, exactly right. If you just want to have a tutorial, then by all means have it. Um, the next slide, though, does sort of illustrate the point that there's no doubt there are some non-traditional things that SIM is good for. It's not just about critical care teams intubating patients or doing CPR. So one of the things that I got asked to do recently was... Um, we set up this new patient flow hub, and uh, I know it says John Hopkins there, we just basically bought theirs. Uh, and it's multiple screens in a room that's not much smaller than this one, which controls all the factors related to patient flow. And as we know, this is really important to hospitals, it's a massive investment. And they said, oh, can you run a sim? And I went, oh, that's not really what I do. And then I kind of thought about it a little bit more and I thought, well, one of the things that was happening here was that people were co-located who previously had been spread around the hospital and now having to work together in ways that they hadn't before. And I thought, oh, these are human-human interfaces. These are human data interfaces. These are human-machine interfaces. Sounds a little bit like a trauma team to me. So, in fact, a lot of the same principles do work well. So I would also say simulation is probably, while it's not for everything and everyone, I would say it's probably for a lot more than we might have traditionally envisaged. And I think that's the big thing is that coming back to the difference between the 14 pulse point mannequin and actually simulation as a technique, not a technology, which is still one of my favourite um, quotes right from back in the David Gabber's Future of um, Simulation paper. Yeah, fantastic. So we might move on to myth two. Mm -hmm. So Simulation myth two, and I've seen this one play out a lot, is don't tell them what the scenario is. It has to be really tricky and there has to be a mystery behind it. Yeah. Uh, we've all had a lot of time on the side of the glass where we feel most comfortable. Uh, and I think this is one of the problems in that people get used to the scenario themselves and so they think, oh, we'll just turn up the heat. Oh, they're doing really well. Let's throw in a this. And I would just suggest that needs careful restraint. One of the reasons for this goes back to some educational principles around cognitive load. And when you go into a simulation, let's face it, it is very different to the real world. Whatever anyone tries to tell you in the pre-brief, don't be fooled by, you know, it's just like at work. It's not like at work. It's quite different in a number of really important ways and pretending otherwise is, a, is, is difficult. 
One of the ways that it's different is, of course, there's only so many things that you can simulate and the people who are attending are very fixated on performing as much as they are practicing. Whatever you say, they feel like they're being judged. So one of the things, if we turn up the cognitive load on what is it, that becomes all-consuming for them. Rather than instead of thinking, I know we're going to have to manage a postpartum hemorrhage as an ED team. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. The real challenge will be making it happen. And that's a far better thing to do in a simulation than to all get there and go, ah, PPH, um, hang on, what are those uh, tissue, tone? And you find people going into cognitive recall mode and the time spent together around the mannequin and the debrief is arguably wasted. So for instance, for our multidisciplinary team, Sims and ED, we send out the pre-reading a bunch of links to the content that will be required to know, and then the simulation is all about how do we make it happen. And I think combined with that is the fact that we're not very good at diagnostic cues. Like Sim is pretty good for actually rolling out a process, but if you're trying to pick up on subtle things, does this patient look sick? Do they look like they've just bled out? Do they look like they're hypotensive or tachypneic? If, even if you're using simulated patients, those things are hard to simulate. And if you're using mannequins, they're particularly hard. And I don't want to waste all the participants' cognitive bandwidth on wondering whether this is signal or noise. Yeah. And I, th I think one of the things there with, is also thinking of cognitive load as kind of co coexisting with stress. And so thinking of that intrinsic versus extrinsic stressors or cognitive load in there. And we often will titrate up and manipulate extrinsic stressors without thinking a great degree about all of the intrinsic stressors. So the diagnostic dilemma that the mannequin or the simulator is not giving the correct cues for, which has been rated by um, clinicians in some pre-work that the guys at, U at St Mike's did for their stress inoculation trial as one of the two highest rated stressors for emergency physicians and uh, residents. Um, the other one is evaluation apprehension, which is by, by nature most simulation scenarios have diagnostic dilemma and inadequate cues plus evaluation apprehension. So thinking that they're bringing this fairly dialed intrinsic cognitive load to what could be a, to us, quite a simple scenario, there's a baseline stress there which is going to reduce working working capacity. And then we layer in other extrinsic load like the difficult family member which is obvious, which is so often a caricature or a stereotype as well. So just being, being really conscious about that is they're generally quite difficult anyway and quite nicely put about where do we, where do we want the bang for the buck? Do we want it them actually showing how rather than in that cognitive space of just trying to figure out their mnemonics for the diagnostics around it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, this next picture, you know, this is what we think people are taking away and this is probably an argument for also reducing the number of learning objectives, not only to dial down on the diagnostic ones but also just to think there's only a few because here you think, oh, this is great, they're thinking about their difficult intubation, they're thinking about their roles, they're thinking about all this stuff. And then if you look at the next slide, that's what they take away, one thing. And so to really be realistic about making sure that one thing is not geez, that wasn't much like a real patient. You know, it's a shame if that's the one thing they're taking away. So I would suggest aim small uh, in the hope of actually achieving it. Excellent, so we might move on to myth number three. So myth number three, it's all about the debrief. I've had this said so many times, but it, it doesn't quite sit right with the whole experiential learning component as well. So do you want to talk us through this one? Yeah, well, as you know, I've got a lot of debriefing friends 
And, uh, you know, they will often come out with phrases just like you said, oh, a simulation is just a good excuse for a debrief. The reality is you have to run a pretty good simulation to have a pretty good debrief. And I think that happens at a few uh, levels. One is about how you prepare people for it. The other is about, uh, technically, if you're actually running something that fits in with people's appropriate task challenge, fits in with their environment challenge. Um, Jesse and Chris Hicks talk about the functional task alignment. Short answer is, this has to feel kind of real enough for people to be engaged in it. The tasks they do have to feel kind of real enough. And that we have to run it smooth enough that it actually gets us in a good place to have a conversation. So while the debrief is important, I don't think you can just waltz in as a fancy debriefer and say, oh, it doesn't matter what happened, I'm going to have this lovely conversation. It has to actually be rooted in something that's affective as well as cognitive for the learners, and only then can you get to the place where they're ready to talk about their performance and review it in a useful way. Yeah, and I think it sells short the um, group thought experiment, the experimentation that, it, that can occur through simulation. So that's something that you um, said you've done a little bit differently recently in terms of format of your debrief. Did you want to just yeah. give us a little insight I into think, that? Um, the, other the other part to this is that we're very used to going, here's a short pre-brief, here's our simulation, and then here's what you might call a terminal debrief, although hopefully not terminal for too many people. Uh, we've certainly played with a couple of formats where we do a little bit more experiment and go back and given up on this long debrief because the trouble is, and I'll take my medical students for an example, is you do this sim, they kind of are a bit disappointed with what they do and then you have a debrief and you put them straight and you know you, they, they've supposedly got these things that they're going to take forward and then what? You know, then they come back six months later or maybe they see that patient or maybe they get to practice it, who knows? Whereas we've now experimented with the live, die, repeat format, where you go a little way into the sim, you pause, how's it going guys, what's going well, what's not going so well, do you want to go back and have another go at that? And they go back and they do it again, and they surprisingly often do it a little bit better, and then you keep going a bit further through the scenario, oh let's pause here, how's it going? Actually that's pretty good isn't it, why was it good? Oh okay, let's keep going, keep going a little bit, let's pause again. How's it going now? Oh god, that was terrible when the patient actually changed rhythm, can we go back and do that again? Sure. Let's go back and do it again. And so our scenarios are about 50% longer. The debriefs are short and sharp and focused, but the chance to practice again, I think, is really beneficial. And we've also done that now with our really big trauma uh, simulations um, in the handover between ED and uh, operating theatre. Very powerful. Excellent. And uh, just touching on the live, die, repeat format, um, that's been published and we've got a prior episode on that. And it's one of my personal favourites because it, uh, especially as a bit of a bit of a gaming nerd, um, it's, it's very aligned with that recursive objective gameplay where you die and you go back to the start of the level or you can just keep progressing. And so there's a, there's a lot of a model there with it. But it's just thinking about those different formats that's really effective. I saw the closet Fortnite players actually looking up from their device. <laughs> <laughs> They'll start dancing soon. <laughs> so myth number four, and this is a personal favourite of mine, um, practising communication and CRM in simulation makes you better at those things. Yeah, yeah and this is tricky, and this is also not restricted to simulation. Uh, some of the, I think, really clever writers in medical education are now saying uh, communication skills training rarely leads to skilled communication. Uh, what we know, and, you know, and yet when you look at patient safety reports and stuff, what comes up, oh, there's another communication thing. The reality is communication is like this little tip of an iceberg that actually is merely a symptom of a whole lot of stuff that's going on underneath. 
There's a reason why people can't follow the recipe for a handover if they don't know anything about the patient. You know, there's a reason that people won't speak up against authority, even though they know the acronym for graded assertiveness, uh, if they actually have been taken down by that person three or four times previously. They are not going to speak up no matter how many acronyms they've got. And I think with the best of intentions, simulation has looked at a lot of these behavioural aspects and they've trained towards certain behaviours. Now that is necessary, but it is not sufficient. Uh, and I think there also is a potential downside, and if you look at the next slide, uh, you know, how do you think you go practicing your breaking bad news telling this guy that he's having a heart attack? I'm struggling with a silver wig on the old, old lady wife, I'm presuming. Yet, yet more Confederate badness, but, uh, you know, if you're breaking bad news to this plastic guy and he sits there and goes, oh, I'm having a heart attack, you know, you're not really picking up on the cues. And, while we might think that's just sort of neutrally bad, it actually is potentially worse because what we tend to do then is train people out of following a conversation and instead think it's all about what you're transmitting towards this plastic guy instead of going, oh, I see recognition on their face or, oh, I see a blank look on their face or I see some sort of response or I've just paused because I think they're about to say something and I realise I need to just wait a little bit longer. That's the stuff you want your learners to be really thinking about and us for to be having debriefing conversations about, not, oh, you followed that lovely Spikes recipe for how to break bad news to a plastic guy. Yeah, and another aspect of that, which I think is one of the problems with CRM training is that it often still stays at domain level. And closed-loop communication is one that, uh, you know, is a, something I'm... A, yeah, just love talking about. But a lot of the stuff around CRM, the way it's debriefed is, is forcing people to do explicit communication. So it's not recognised. A lot of the time I've, I've actually been in a lot of scenarios where there's been excellent implicit communication. There's been the uh, universal sign for this patient needs a tube. I'm putting my thumb down my throat there for the audio audience. Um, and th that's been responded to, picked up by the team leader and gone, yes, we're going to need to intubate. So, uh, but no, not a verbal readback, which is often where we've been a little bit rigid in the application of some of these principles that we can actually have a negative training effect as well because implicit coordination is a, a function of high-performing teams. Explicit coordination can be because there's a, either a scatter in terms of the team mental model or there's a new, a new urgent cue that's been introduced into the clinical situation. So we should actually see high degrees of um, implicit coordination. But then if we're debriefing a, a team and they come, come in and go, well, no, you didn't do closed-loop communication because you didn't say one milligram of adrenaline, sir. Yes, one milligram of adrenaline given. Um, but there was clear recognition, eye contact, holding up the syringe, that, that was all actually very much closed-loop. Mm, yeah. And I think the... Um uh, related to that, I guess I will just sort of put in a little plug for... So that uh, picture you saw back there... Um, I now do with simulated patients and I guess the technologies have moved on, the modalities have moved on and now we have got monitor adjuncts that we can make patients look like they're having a heart attack <clears throat> and the cues that our medical students pick up on are, are surprisingly um, uh, on the money really for me. They start talking about how the patient's facial faces look, what's their body language, the kind of things we do want them to pick up on. So myth number five, there's no downsides to simulation. Yes, uh, obviously there's, there's many and varied. 
some of them I think we know well and we talk about quite a lot. We, we are concerned about psychological safety and we're going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, we haven't been perhaps as concerned as we should be about physical safety and I think particularly with the rise of in-situ simulation we need to be very careful about that and the impact that that might have on patients. So I think um, I would say, and if you've got a next uh, slide there, there's, there's a couple of things though that we might not recognise. So this is actually a photo from a simulation that I did in 2005 and we were training junior doctors to go out what we called country relieving, where they'd have to spend two or three weeks going and relieving their general practitioners who worked out rurally. Highly motivated group of learners, very engaged in simulation. Anyway, I showed this photograph very proudly at the Royal Brisbane Hospital Grand Rounds, and uh, anyway, one of the senior infectious disease physicians put up his hand and said, oh, Vic, you're going to have to take all those photos again. I said, why? He said, no one is wearing gloves. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, but... Hmm. It's a pretty good habit to get into wearing gloves, just saying, and uh, particularly if you've got very junior learners who haven't got a bank of alternate repertoire of, yeah, I've put on my gloves about 10,000 times to do things. Actually, they start to pick up on cues that you might be unintendedly sending, and I think that's the thing. In the rush to make some things real and forget about other things, sometimes we send hidden curricular kind of messages that are unintended. Yeah, and some... Uh you, you're surprised at how how you're not aware that they're they're unintended as well. So one one of the examples is the stereotyped Confederates. Uh, the, over the years, I've been in some scenarios that have actually made parents look stupid and annoying around the child because again they're being used as a an instrument to actually add noise rather than to add an, a genuine authentic kind of component and communication aspect to it. So it's it's a dealing with the parent scenario which creates an unrealistic expectation and, and there is a negative learning that can occur with that. I use the example of parents, but you can easily substitute that with the obstructive, rude... Uh, yeah, the video is named Silly Surgeon and it's a time-stamped video of a previous simulation. So I think that's one thing I'd be really encouraging everyone to think about is think about the subtlety of everyone that you work with and write write realistic confederate roles into your scenarios um, and that kind of loops back again to, to we don't have to be extreme to actually increase cognitive load in those situations purely having to have a genuine and emotional conversation with a parent or a real debate over a diagnosis with a, a consulting colleague is a lot of extra cognitive load in a scenario. Yeah. And if you just go back then to the one before that, um, just again thinking about unintended consequences, with every new technology advance comes a problem. So this is a I simulate. So we do a lot of uh, simulation combining these monitor emulators with our simulated patients. So this patient is acting as though she's got a supraventricular tachycardia and she will act as though she's just received some adenosine when we give it into her fake IV. They're pretty good at that, these simulated patients. And, uh, and the monitor will reflect what we want it to reflect, not what it is. But of course, if you are an experienced practitioner, most of the people in the room, as soon as you saw that monitor doing that, you would reach over and take the pulse of the patient. And you go, oh, that's all right, it's only 60. <laughs> and of course, what we're saying to the students is, oh, just for today, the monitor is always right, which is pretty much a very powerful wrong message that we want to get out there. So it's not to say don't do it. We still run this scenario. 
but it's just about being aware of what the trade-offs are each time with your um, great new advance. Do you now make the simulated patients run up and down stairs or do some push-ups beforehand so that their heart rate's up and they're diaphoretic? Oh, no, we've got better, better sweat than that. Yeah. Just a little glycerin and water, it's fantastic. <laughs> so myth number six, it's a safe space here. Yeah, just show the next picture. It's not a safe place, is it? You know, someone's behind a mirror watching you, but don't worry. Uh, there's all your colleagues watching you, but don't worry. I guess my, um, my problem here is not the concept of psychological safety. That is a great concept. My problem is paying lip service to it by saying, and the pre-brief, it's all safe here. I think it's really important to validate the fact that people might be feeling very unsafe when they come to simulation for a whole variety of reasons. One, Jesse's alluded to, this evaluation apprehension is pretty powerful. Most of us really do not enjoy um, others watching us and us perceiving that they're making judgments on us. The fact that that happens every day at work, sometimes we seem to forget about. But in sim, the spotlight is very much on performance, whether that's individuals or teams. So I think uh, for me, the idea about psychological safety is something you really have to create rather than state. And that does involve being truly interested in why people do what they do, uh, being truly respectful of whatever has happened, being prepared to validate their feelings of anxiety and other things. It's certainly not about making it easy for them. It's certainly not about not going there if something awkward happens in the sim. It's about actually having the integrity to go to places where people will get useful feedback, but at the same time doing that in a respectful way. So I think um, this is one of the, I think the misunderstood uh, parts of sim is this concept of psychological safety. Yeah, and it's also the difficulty is this whole sim lab versus in situ, like where you're working with a team that's your own, and I'm aware that you guys are embarking here in your health service into a large uh, in situ program, they, they know you and consistency is key to psychological safety. So if I start being really soft and sitting around and doing really kumbaya sort of debriefing style and they're going to think, what the hell is happening here? And it's going to dial because the rules aren't, the, the expectations and rules aren't being met. Um, I'm all of a sudden being a different person. That's an extreme example, but the other one, as uh, our friend Chris Nixon put it, um, that when he wrote an um, expert commentary for one of our journal clubs on psych, psych safety, was if you're a dick every day, you can't wave the magic wand, uh, the psych safety magic wand, and therefore make yourself not a dick. That's paraphrasing, but <laughs> got to throw in some common Australian vernacular into the mix there. We do actually talk to it. Yes. I'm glad that translated. Um, but that's a key thing, but if, and that really comes back to that principle of if people aren't feeling safe and you say this is a safe place to make mistakes, the distrust's going to be far greater than just saying recognise this is actually pretty, possibly pretty scary or some of you are probably feeling fine about it. All of that's okay um, and it's actually just being truthful and honest and, and clear. So I think I, that's probably been a big practice change for me because I was taught in those courses to, and, and it was kind of surreptitiously modelled to go, this is a safe learning environment. and it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think our next slide uh, also, uh, if you want to look further onto that, because this is worth spending a bit of time on. Uh, and I think on the car up here we were talking about pre-briefing and I think that's actually one of the main reasons to do the pre-briefing is to start to get out the powerful messages uh, about how we're all going to conduct ourselves here and, uh, and that does need to be in your own 
lingo with your own learners in a way that sounds like a conversation to them but which makes explicit that respect. So uh, by all means have a listen, it's one of our top ones. Yeah, yeah, and I think in short the two kind of key sound bites that I'd say are really um, uh, making the unpredictable predictable enough, which we've kind of touched on, doesn't have to be a massive mystery. Um, the more predictability there is, the more likelihood there is for the participants to feel like they're not taking as much of an interpersonal and professional identity risk. And the other one is closing the authority gap or that, um, and that, that can be through genuine use of some uh, genuine displays of vulnerability and fallibility as the facilitator. If you're a peer of the group, that can just uh, actually be saying, hey, I've tanked these sort of clinical cases myself, I've missed these diagnoses myself. Um, if not, you might, if you, there's a significant authority gradient, it might take a more, um, more open display of vulnerability to actually close that perceived gap. And that's, they're the sort of nuances that make it feel safe rather than saying it is safe, I guess, is the summary. Grossly underselling Jenny's amazing interview um, of 30 minutes, but so I'd still listen to it. Yeah. Uh, on the topic of safety, um, you know, this is one of the things that often comes up uh, and this is going to underdo a very important topic about simulation and assessment. Uh, often I think one of the things that people see sim as is a pseudo kind of assessment. So uh, our people in charge will come and say to us, uh, because in Australia attendings don't do nights, just saying. Yeah. Uh, so it does mean that this is actually a really big thing for us. Are those trainees ready to do night shift on their own with just us on the end of the phone or maybe can come in but with a kind of 20 to 30 minute lag? And so the, the idea that um, you can run a sim and that will be a realistic assessment of people's performance, I think, is really dangerous ground to be on. There are ways to approach validity and reliability in simulation. It can be used for assessment. It's about whether you've decided that that is the purpose of what you're doing today with these people or not. Uh, but it can't be a combination of, oh, it's really good for them to learn, and by the way, we'll just make sure they're good enough. Those two things, are, you're on tricky ground. Um, you've got some great leaders in the simulation and assessment world in this country, like Ryan Bridges and uh, Walter and all sorts of other people. Uh, that's great. That is important work to do, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But as someone who might be one of the conduits to the simulation equipment and experiences, I think you have to be just really clear about uh, whether you do this at all. Yeah, so just to timestamp that for the audio point of view, we're talking about myth number seven is, which is um, kind of inverted commas, uh, we'll just make sure they're right to do nights on their own. And I guess the flip side to that is, what if they're not? And I, I've seen these sort of scenarios that uh, that you kind of think of as a pre-deployment scenario, and then, then, then maybe not quite up to it. And it's like, well, we haven't really assessed properly, they'll probably be all right. We'll just maybe make sure they have a phone a friend option a bit more. So yeah, it is, it's a pseudo assessment a lot of the time. And um, the ones that are obviously not up to it have generally been uh, well and truly declared themselves before that and running a once off simulation um, doesn't usually make much of a difference. So myth number eight is really around this um, false dichotomy that there's one better format, oh, the lab, the sim lab or InSightU. And uh, so myth number eight is that InSightU is best. Uh, you know, I have been a huge proponent of InSightU simulation and still do, but I also do simulation in dedicated simulation spaces as well. And I think what I saw happening was this really unhelpful debate between which was better. So InSightU simulation does offer wonderful opportunities. You really can think about 
How does your team perform in their native environment uh, with their native team members, with the equipment that they normally use, using the systems that they normally use? And to some extent, those scenarios are uh, a test of the system as much as they are of the team or of the individual. So there are immense opportunities, but it comes at a big price. Uh, because to organise those things takes a fair amount of organising, just using up all your social capital and selling a few children to get some space in the ED. You know, you've only got so many children, you can only do that so many times. Um, but you, and you also run the risk of compromising the safety of uh, real patients, that's a reality. And the other thing that uh, you have less control over the things we've just been talking about in terms of psychological safety, because what if people have to run off to do something else, you haven't had a chance to talk about what happened in the sim, you may be tempted to skimp on the pre-briefing. So uh, what I would say is sim-lab-based sim simulation is also really good for the things that it does. And don't over-specify things and say, oh, we'll just run them in there because it'd be good for them to practice their intubations in the actual trauma bay. Well, it might be, but it just might not be worth what it's going to take to do it there. And, uh, and I guess that um, the, uh, here's one that I did, and I just had to put this one up here because this was an inside simulation that we did in Denmark. And the most outrageous, unrealistic thing about this was that I had to play the non-Danish-speaking Australian grandmother. <laughs> just for our listeners, I look much younger than that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but interestingly, what they do, you know, on the face of it, it seems like a good idea, and I still think it is, is that they would every Friday afternoon run an in situ simulation in their ward based on one of the patients who was currently an inpatient who they thought might deteriorate over the weekend. And they would go, oh, well, they could have another GI bleed, and this is what we do. And uh, so the residents and nurses who were going to be on over the weekend participated in this sim. That's great. And I just said to the guy running it, I said, uh, do you tell the patient that you're doing this? And he went, oh, no. <laughs> and you know, so I guess my point was, I don't know what the answer to that is, uh, but it just raises new dilemmas that I think we haven't thought about when it's a, um, when it's a new modality. And uh, actually, I do have a PhD student now that's kind of looking at this. What is the attitudes and perceptions of the healthcare consumers who are around in situ simulation or who may be the subject of it? But I think these are just new questions we've got. Yeah, and I've certainly run um, in situ simulations in most areas of, of a couple of hospitals that I've worked in, and by and large, um, the only people I'm ever wary about are people who are delirious, and I can't debrief about the about what what they're watching. Um, uh, the, I've been in situations where people have well, some of the staff on the wards have well-meaningly pulled curtains around, and the patients gone, "Hell no, I want to watch." Um, I think generally it's quite reassuring to know that we're practicing this stuff for people. I'm quite reassured to know the number of flight hours, uh, simulator flight hours that pilots have had before I hop in a plane with them. So it's uh, quite unusual that it, it would so doubt in um, patients and their families to see us or know, know that we're practicing emergency situations. Yeah, and that's certainly <clears throat> early what we're finding. Um, and I guess if you are interested, this is the paper that I wrote last year on translational simulation, and which we discussed with Glenn Posner, another local, uh, about you know what are the purposes and the why of doing simulation, whether it's in situ or otherwise. And there's no doubt if we want to directly focus on patient outcomes, often we do have to have come closer to where the patients are. But at the same time, there's really good simulation that improves patient outcomes that is conducted in a simulation lab, particularly procedural-based sim. There's no need to do that necessarily in situ. So uh, anyway, if you want to look, there's more there. It's free. 
Uh, this one, I guess, is a lot made of, and I, I think it is worth just spending a little bit of time if you are embarking on simulation, is essentially to do some kind of a risk matrix, risk register. Uh, this was a case widely publicised in the US. Interestingly, it wasn't an in situ sim program, but some fake IV fluids got put into some real people and a couple of them died. And so uh, there are now some people keeping track of some adverse events that happen with related to simulation. So for me, just on a practical level, this means that when we do our Insight Sim, we use all real drugs, except for things that are immensely expensive, um, including dangerous drugs, narcotics. We just sign them out to our simulated patient, as long as you can account for them. There's actually no rule that says that DDs can't be signed out to a fake person as long as someone knows where they go. Uh, likewise, induction agents, everything, because I cannot run the risk of a real patient getting fake normal saline instead of rocuronium. And it's the same actually with equipment. I was just talking to someone uh, yesterday from Cairns near us who said, oh, we're going to bring in our, our fake airway trolley into the trauma room and then we'll take it out at the end of the sim. I said, just don't. An endotracheal tube compared to what the time, of the price of the time of the people you've got involved, that just has to be something that you can stump up because the risk of having fake stuff is just too high. Yeah, and the benefit of using the real stuff is is when you find that something is not there where everyone expected it to be, um, from protocols to expired um, fluids in grab packs to uh, drugs that were meant to be in a quick in, in a grab kit that aren't there. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of lot greater benefits um, than than not doing that, than bringing in the fake ones and risking potentially having something left behind. If you're in a situation where you do have to bring that in, and I'd encourage you guys, if you're playing around with um, in situ uh, sim templates, scenario templates, actually have a risk section in the template and then don't just list them. Um, if you list a risk, have a mitigating strategy. So we've we've done played around with different templates um, and the in situ specific ones, one of the very big differences is there's a risks and mitigating factors column on our in situ sim template and the other one is no-go criteria which there's a recent really interesting publication about that as well as developing your own no-go criteria that are agreed beforehand because um, the tendency will be to abort it's it's easier to as an educator simulations high risk so especially when you're starting, um, it, you can give a terrible lecture and no one will come up to you afterwards and go, geez, that was a crap lecture. Um, whereas a sim, if you... And I won't blame the PowerPoint. No. Whereas a sim, if you um, make people feel uncomfortable and bad because you've actually designed a, a poor simulation or given them something inaccurate they've had trouble interpreting, uh, you'll feel as uncomfortable as them afterwards. So I think there's a natural baseline, particularly when you're starting to look for opportunities not to do sim. Um, so having pre-agreed no-go criteria and who has the veto power, who you actually devolve the veto power to um, during uh, when you are running an insight scenario is really important. So myth number nine is um, simulations all about um, patient safety and correcting mistakes. Yeah, well, we'll do this one quickly. And in fact, if you just show the next slide, um, we did a podcast with um, Peter Diekman and Mary Patterson uh, on this topic. Some of you might be familiar with the new thinking in, in say, patient safety. You know, Previously, it was just, let's go find all the errors in our root cause analysis and let's find a way that they'll never, ever happen again. And of course, what we found is that was fairly flawed because as soon as we put in one process to stop one thing, that would often bring a new thing that we had to worry about. 
So I guess where safety two comes at is that, you know, bad things will happen. And one of the tests of us as teams and systems and institutions is our ability to deal with those things when they do. And so I think that does then extend to our debriefing instead of just saying, oh, you should never put the tube in the esophagus, except that that will happen and actually start to really explore why it didn't lead to desaturation in this patient because we recognised it early, we had a strategy for what we would do, we'd articulated our plan B, whatever it is. But it's about shifting the focus a little bit to also learning from success and then maybe even in that way having yourself an awesome and amazing case at your morbidity and mortality meetings as well. Yeah, and one of the other things I really liked about um, what Peter Diekman said in the podcast interview was learn from the mundane as well as the arcane. Um, so uh, something that goes seamlessly or something that's actually quite a relatively benign clinical case, just trying to actually unpick and understand why, why it went well, what worked from it. Was it because everything was in the right right places. Um, would that work? The other question I really like to ask is, would that work well with, uh, with other team members that aren't here today? Was, was that a product of actually that you guys have a lot of knowledge about where certain things are, how to use them? What was it that let you do it well? Because quite often it'll stop, the, you'll, you'll level the question out there and they'll go, oh, it's because, um, yeah, I know where everything is or um, it's because, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got experience in this. Um, and so it's asking those deeper diving questions into things that we kind of would normally go, the outcome was good, so let's not worry about the process. Myth number 10, simulation works, but it's too hard to prove. Uh, yeah, so a few slides uh, for this last one. I, I, often people write to me, sometimes it's a short email, have you just got a few papers that prove simulation works? Because we need to get some money from our CEO. Uh, and I go, uh, no. And then they say, oh, well, actually, what we really want to ask is just a simulation work it worth it. Have you got a few papers that just say, yeah, the return on investment's really good? And disappointing though it is, it's, this isn't a simple question. And I guess it comes from the fact that a lot of us work in a sort of positivist worldview where we're comparing beta blocker A with ACE inhibitor B for hypertension. And that's really, that works well. Does it work? But for things like education, every situation is different and uh, techniques of evaluation need to be more nuanced and think, well, what works, for whom, in what situation, under what circumstances. And every experiment is essentially an N equals one. Um, oh, that was you. Nice. Uh, there's no doubt that sometimes we can prove it works. So this was some work that I did um, at the Royal Brisbane 2010 where we just looked at the pathway from patients who were needing to go to cath lab for their STEMIs. And we involved people across the patient journey. We did some very boring simulation that just involved us practicing and talking about what would make it better. And you know what? We halved our door to lab time um, in the six months after we'd done these simulations for the real patients. And so, you know, I dined out on that for about five years. And, uh, I've, I've seen that presentation a number of times. I know, fantastic. And what it allowed me to do was uh, actually get a lot of other stuff done that I couldn't prove. Same thing, Jeff Barsick's work at uh, Northeastern, sorry, Northwestern um, in Chicago about central lines. Another great one. Look at all this money that they save just by doing some central line training. $700,000 in their ICU in decreased central line uh, associated infections by doing training. He's dined out on that one for about 15 years. Um, you know, but then if you decide, oh, I'm going to run an intubation training program for the neonatal registrars, proving that return on investment is going to be hard. 
because already they're very well supervised, already there's a low incidence of problems um, that you can really start to count in a monetary way. So then do you conclude that it's not worth training the neonatal uh, residents in intubation? Obviously not. There's some things that just aren't going to lend themselves to this. Um, likewise, one of the, I think, best sims that we did a couple of years ago was starting electroconvulsive therapy in our mental health wing. And we just did some simple scenarios, just practicing, you know, what were we going to need? Because this was a new site that we were doing it and the groups hadn't worked together. And we found a bunch of things to improve. But the main thing we found, uh, because what happened in the sim was they came into an anti-room, then they went into the sim, uh, into the actual room where they delivered the ECT and the sedation, and then they went into recovery. And in the debrief, the simulated patients told us, you know what, when you're waiting outside, you can hear everything that happens in that other room and it is terrifying. So I think we managed to help our real patients uh, experience there significantly. So before we even had any real patients, we were able to change that physical layout. And again, could I prove how much money we'd save to the CEO? Not really, because we had to actually shift and remodel one part of the hospital. But I think that that was probably worth it. So I think um, in terms of proving it's worth it as a program, you've got to have about 20% of stuff that you can show. Here's our faster, safer, more efficient, more effective things. And then you will be able to use that to get leverage for the 80% of work that you know does good, but which you're probably going to spend more money trying to prove than you will save by doing it. So I do think one of the key things we've got to have as simulation people is an ability to articulate our worth. And that is a little different to being able to count our value. And I haven't got much to add to that at all. I think that's a really good good uh, area to wrap up on. And hopefully, as you guys forge forward with your programs, you'll um, be able to articulate your worth and uh, hopefully add some value as well. So I'd like to thank you, Victoria, for being a guest on our own podcast. And <laughs> thanks to the audience here. <laughs>